Well, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke 6. If you don't have your Bibles, reach in front of you. There's one in the pew uh, right in front of you and turn there anyways. So we've got some great stuff here. Webster defines envy as discontented or resentful, longing, uh, a discontented, resentful or longing aroused by another's possessions, qualities or luck. He defines covetousness as a yearning to possess something belonging to someone else. He defines discontent as a lack of contentment. Contentment being a state of peaceful happiness. Biblically, contentment is being satisfied with what God has made you and given you and placed you right now in your life. Are you fine with that? If you aren't, you're not content. God wants all of us to be content. But don't think that being content means not having any goals, not having any desires, not having any passions, not having any ambitions. Some people take being content as just passive sluggardliness, but that's not what it means. Now, being discontent is to accuse God of not giving you what you deserve. It's to either think inside or act outside like God has done you wrong. Like he should know better. He he should have given you that new car, that new job or that whatever. This shouldn't have happened to you. You should have better health or whatever it is. It is to accuse God of doing wrong towards you. And usually the sure sign of a discontented heart is anger, bitterness, resentful, pouting when you don't get what you want. You get bombed. But if you can strive for something, if you can really work hard for something, if you can have some clear goals and work hard at trying to achieve them and then not get what you want and afterwards say, oh, well. Must not be the Lord's will. Then you've got contentment. Then you've got contentment. But how few are the members of the church and how few are Christians who are really content, who have really mastered the art of contentment. You know, the toddler wants a cookie. Mom says no. So they cry. You know, the fourth grader wants to watch some show on TV. The parents say, no, pouts. The junior hire wants a $400 iPod with $200 worth of accessories. The parents say, get a clue, get a job, get a life. And so for several days, they whine and complain and they don't have any joy. And they walk around with a little pokey outy lip because they don't have an iPod. The college student wants to have a relationship with somebody and they get dumped or they're not noticed and it falls apart. And and then they just go into this big mental tailspin and pouting session and self-destructive behavior because they are getting what they want. 
Well, the housewife is all I do is clean house and change diapers. And the husband, I never get that promotion and they don't pay me enough and they don't appreciate me enough. This is all signs of discontent, envy, covetousness. It's to accuse God. You're not giving me what I want. And because you aren't, I'm going to have a bad attitude. I'm going to let it steal all of my joy and I'm not going to give you glory. And the world caters to this kind of stuff. Every time you turn on the TV, every time you open a magazine, every time you read the paper, every time you listen to the radio, you hear about the rich people, the famous people, the beautiful people, the skinny people, the people with brains, the people with awards, the people with whatever. And it's not you. (laughs) And so we aren't happy. We're kind of discontent. Thomas Watson in his work, The Art of Divine Contentment, which I would recommend to anybody who's tough enough to read it. It is such a rebuke to people in this day and age. It is a, it's easy to read, big print, small pages. I'm telling you, it would take you to the woodshed and you'll come out black and blue. But I recommend it. Said this. Watson says, discontent is the devil's delight. The devil dances at discord. He sings at discontent. The fire of our passions make the devil a bonfire, and it is a kind of heaven to him to see us torturing ourselves with our own troubles, end quote. Watson also said, Murmuring is no better than mutiny in the heart. It is a rising up against God. When the sea is rough and unquiet, it casts forth nothing but foam. And when the heart is discontented, it casts forth the foam of anger, impatience, and sometimes little better than blasphemy. Murmuring is nothing else than the scum which boils off from a discontented heart. End quote. And I could go on. But I think that's conviction enough. We're all discontented at times. I mean, we we get discontented over little things. You mean we're out of milk? (laughs) I mean, things that are just, we're just complaining and grumbling. and, And all of these are, what we're really saying is, God, can't you just keep milk in my refrigerator? This morning, as we come to Luke 6, verses 12 through 14, we are going to find the antidote for a discontented heart. Now, I just want you to know, I had no idea I was going to be preaching on contentment this morning. As a matter of fact, this week, as I thought, oh, man, we're going to do this cool character sketch on Peter. And we're going to learn all these cool things about Peter and what he did right and what he did wrong and, you know, good lessons for leadership or whatever. And then when I started studying on the text, I started meditating on the text. I just was convicted to the core about contentment. So I'm sorry, you're just going to have to bear up with me. I think uh, that Luke did not have contentment in mind at all when he wrote this text, but I think he did show us accurately some things about Jesus, about God the Father, and about Peter, which help us are the antidote to contentment. Next week, we'll do Peter. Um, You know, I was going to, you know, 
do six messages on verses 12 through 16. But then after last service, I decided I'm doing seven. So it may be bigger. We may be eight now because they don't like me to do uneven numbers of messages because they waste a space in the little tape holders. Um, so we'll do eight. I hear about it, you know, from people that are around me. Now we'll see what happens. But remember in the text, Jesus is doing miracles. He's going through healing people, preaching, and huge mobs of people are following him. They're, they're following him around. They're um, being healed. Uh, he's having conflict with the religious leaders who don't like the attention Jesus is getting. And Jesus is openly rebuking them, exposing them, just uh, humiliating them. Last week, we saw how he had conflict over the Sabbath in a couple different instances. And then Luke now tells us about the choosing of the 12. And you come to this passage and you think, okay, you know, Jesus prayed about it, uh, went out and chose the 12 and hear their names. Now we can go on from there. But I'm telling you now, there's some great stuff here. And you're going to see why starting this morning. Well, look at verse 12 of Luke 6 and follow along as I read. Luke chapter 6, verse 12. And it was at this time that he went off to a mountain to pray. And he spent the whole night in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also named apostles. Simon, whom he also named Peter and Andrew, his brother, and James and John and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus and Simon, who is called the zealot, Judas, the son of James and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. So for this morning, I want to point out three practical lessons you can learn, Ashley, from verses 12, 13, and the first part of 14, that will help you to live a contented life. A contented life. The first is this, pray hard when making important decisions. Look at verse 12. And it came to pass in those days that he went out into a mountain to pray and continued to pray, uh, continued all night in prayer to God. Now, this is one of those verses that just kind of just zaps you. I don't know about you. It just instantly makes you feel guilty. I mean, how often do you pray all night? Have you ever prayed all night? Do you think you will ever die before you die? Do you think you will ever have prayed all night? That's convicting, isn't it? Poor Dave Fogg called me this week and was talking to me on the phone, said, hey, what are you studying? Oh, I dumped on him. (laughs) He's like, oh, thanks for the conviction. And so now I'm just going to spread it to everybody. Everybody gets it. Jesus prayed all night long on a mountain in a lonely place. And the first thing we notice, he first went away to the mountains. Sometimes we think that if we don't pray in a group and we don't pray out loud, you know, with other people listening, that we aren't praying. But really, when you look at the scriptures, the scriptures teach the opposite. I mean, they they don't condemn group prayer or corporate prayer or prayer in a service or whatever, but they focus on private prayer. You need to privately pray. Prayer is between you and God. So often we get around and, you know, we're sitting in a group of people and, you know, we know they're listening. So, oh, Lord, you know, that was new. 
that you are enthroned above and the cherubims. And, you know, I mean, we just go, we lapse into Elizabethan English and, you know, we start praying all these hitherto fours and you're wondering, man, what happened to this guy? He just went into a time warp, you know? (laughs) And what happens is, is we do that because we're more concerned about other people listening to us than we are about speaking to God. And this is what's good about secret prayer. You go into secret prayer, like Jesus said in Matthew 6, 6, but when you pray, go to your inner room Close your door, pray to your father who is in secret, and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Jesus' prayer closet was the top of a mountain, away from all the hustle and bustle of the city, away from all the people, away from all the crowds. He went up on the top of the mountain all alone to pray, and believe me, when you get all alone to pray, you're who you are before the Almighty God. You don't do this, oh, hither to fither stuff. Because you know that God can interpret any language. You just use normal English. You don't try to impress him by, you know, subtly giving small lectures to people who are sitting next to you. It's just about you and it's about God. You know that God is all knowing. He's all wise. He's almighty. And he's listening to you. And now you're talking to him. And he already knows everything, but he wants to have a relationship with you. And this is what Jesus did. He went alone to the top of the mountain and he prayed. And I don't know about you, but to me, that sounds great. I mean, one of the great things is when you just sit down and there's nobody around. Just open your Bible and just talk with God. And it's just like, ah. And then you wonder, why don't I do this more? Secondly, notice in verse 12 that he spent the whole night in prayer to God. When I think about this, besides convicting me in my lazy prayer life, it makes me marvel that Jesus, who was perfect, who never sinned, who couldn't sin because he was impeccable, who only did the Father's will and trusted God, prayed, and not only prayed, but prayed all night before making this important decision, choosing the twelve. I mean, how many of us pray all night before making an important decision? How many of us ever pray all night? But Jesus did. And then I asked myself, why? Why did he do this? Was he trying to manipulate the father? No. Was he trying to change the father's eternal decree? No. Was he thinking that maybe if he just prayed long enough that he could get God to choose whom he wanted to choose? No. No, he was coming before the father, acknowledging that as a man, he needed the father's help, strength and wisdom and direction for choosing the 12. And he knew that God was absolutely sovereign. He knew that God's plan couldn't be thwarted. He knew that God would accomplish his good purposes through him. And yet he still prayed all night. That just amazes me. And he did this as an example for you and me. That we need to pray, that we need to trust God. You see, prayer is an act of you trusting in God for your needs to come before him. And yeah, you can, you know, praise him or thank him or whatever. But when it comes down to asking for things, you realize you just aren't in control of certain things. God is in control of everything. And so you come before him in prayer and you dump on him to try and unload the burdens of your heart 
on him, knowing that he's going to do what he's going to do according to his will. And it's like, ah, and this helps you be content. It helps you be content knowing that, listen, God's sovereign. I'm not. He's in control. I'm not. He's all powerful. I'm not. He has unlimited resources. I don't. So I'm going to come before him. I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray hard. I'm then I'm going to go make the decision or do the thing or whatever. And it makes me wonder, though, Jesus prayed all night. And why don't we? Why don't we? Why don't we even pray sometimes? I mean, forget the all night thing. Do you think that we're just too busy? You think Jesus wasn't busy? I mean, just think about it tonight. Pray all night, wake up tomorrow and then go to work. Sounds painful, doesn't it? Maybe it's that we don't want to bother God. Do you think God, you know, can only handle a certain amount of prayer? That doesn't work. Maybe we're not convinced that prayer does any good. This is where I think we're getting closer here. We're kind of convinced that, listen, you know, I've prayed at times and I've done certain things and I have uh, really tried hard and uh, prayed for certain things very diligently. And God didn't give me what I wanted. I mean, he didn't answer my prayer. And so I don't even know if prayer works. At least it doesn't work for me very much. Now, I would imagine that if God caused a $20 bill to show up in your wallet every time you prayed, that you would become a fabulous prayer. I mean, this church would be known for its prayer. Let's go, yeah, let's go to lunch. Let me pray first. You want to go to a nice restaurant? Let me pray about it. Now, why would we, why would we all of a sudden become great prayers if that happened? Because now we're getting something. We're getting what we want. We can see the fruit of prayer. I prayed. I'm getting something. And this is at the whole core of the problem. Prayer is not about you getting what you want. At least it shouldn't be. Prayer is about God getting what he wants. It's not my will, but thine be done. Is what should be behind every single prayer. If we ask things according to his will, he hears us. And so when you come to God in prayer, you need to make sure that selfishness isn't ruling your prayer life. Oh, Lord, this is what I want. This is what I like. And this is what I need. Now, I'm going to pray for this. And if you don't give me this, then listen, I'm shutting down this whole prayer thing because you aren't giving me what I want. That's envy. That's covetousness. That's being discontent. I mean, doesn't Romans 8, 26 and 27 tell us that we don't know how to pray as we should, but that the spirit intercedes with groanings too deep for words and intercedes for us according to the will of God. Isn't that great? I mean, you don't know how to pray as you should. And you do ask for the wrong things. And then you put on the end of your prayer, but not my will, but thine be done. Or if it be thy will, Lord. And you know what you're doing when you say that? When you say that, what you're doing is you're basically saying, listen, God, I don't know if this is the right thing to pray or not. You feel free not to give me what I'm asking for. Because you know better than me. 
And what's neat is, is that Romans 8, 26 and 27 tells us that God is interceding for us according to his own will. So you can have the joy of knowing that when you pray, even though you may pray wrong, God is interceding through the Holy Spirit so that your prayers align up with what God wants for you and what is best for you, which means every time you pray, you get what's best. Every time you get what's best for you and what's best for God. Now, if you keep that in mind, it's a great antidote to discontentment to know I pray God hears me. God knows what's going to happen. He's got a plan. The spirit's working. Prayer is the serious poison that kills the three-headed monster of envy and covetousness and discontentment. You don't have to worry. You don't have to fret. Do you think Jesus got up there the next day and said, okay, I got to, you know, there's thousands of people here. You know, okay, which 12? Uh, think he was bothered? No, he was laid back. He thought, listen, I prayed all night about it. I'm going to go pick 12. Trust God. And you know, after you get to know the 12, you think, you know, I think he made some mistakes. (laughs) I mean, you know, there were, there were some guys who don't seem like maybe, you know, were the best guys that Jesus could have picked. But we need to realize, as Matthew 6 tells us, that God is already working to answer our prayers before we ask. Jesus wasn't anxious about choosing the 12. He was relaxed. He was chilled out, man. Listen, when you're not in control, you're not in control. So you bring it before the father, you pray hard and you trust him. And whatever happens, you know, God's will may not be what I like, may not be what I want. That's what God wants. And if he didn't want it, he'd make sure it didn't happen because he's all powerful. And this is why prayer is one of the great antidotes to discontentment. And I would wager this, that if you find yourself a discontent, grumbling, complaining, envious, covetous Christian, you will find yourself a Christian who isn't praying much. Because when you are constantly throwing everything on God, coming before God, all of a sudden you realize, you know what? God's sovereign. I'm not. He's in control. I'm not. He's got him on resources. I don't. You know, I've prayed about it and we're just going to see what God does. And then when he does, you can just relax and go, okay, you know, this is it. You may get what you asked for. You may not. But if you don't get what you asked for, God got what he wanted. And that's all you want because you're praying according to his will, right? At least you should be. Now, some of you may be out there going, well, Jack, you know, That's good if you pray, but man, my prayer life is pretty pathetic. You know, what do I do? Well, the first thing you need to realize is that when you don't pray, you're really being selfish. You're being self-reliant, self-sufficient. And you just need to confess that sin to God. You need to come before God and say, Lord, I know I don't pray like I should. I know I don't trust you. I know I don't rely upon you. Just unload and confess everything to God. Secondly, make sure you have a God motivated rather than a self motivated prayer life. When you catch yourself saying, Lord, I want this and please do this and please do that. But you don't tack on the all important phrase. Yet not my will, but thine be done or 
your will, Lord. If you don't tack that on, then you just, you're looking for what you want. And that's why your prayers aren't being answered. Third, try to have a formal time of prayer each day with God. You know, you can do a prayer journal. You know, you can get the, you know, uh, our prayer sheets that we publish every week. You can show up at Wednesday night from, you know, seven to eight when we have a prayer time over here. Just a little quick devotion, a time of silent prayer where we pray for the needs of the church. Uh, you know, you can do the, the acts thing, um, you know, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. You know, you can do that. You know, I can do the confession up front just because I have a lot of things to confess usually. But yeah, you do that. Try and make sure you have a formal time of prayer set apart where this is the time that you have set aside for you and God to talk alone with no one else around. And then try to, fourthly, cultivate a life of prayer. And some people, some of you I'm sure are doing this. Other of you maybe don't do this. You know, you're driving. Instead of just listening to a bunch of, you know, radio, a bunch of advertisements, turn it off and pray. You know, when you're sitting at your desk, pray before making a decision, pray before you make a phone call, pray before you talk to somebody, pray before you confront somebody, pray before you do whatever, pray before you do your ministry, pray, make a decision, pray before something goes into your mouth, pray. Do you you want me to have this? Pray, pray, pray. And you can, you can put up some things in your life. Like, uh, you can set up memorials. Do you, know, you remember in the Old Testament how they would, you know, pile up a pile of stones and this is a memorial to the Lord. So that when you come and your children come and say, Hey, why is that pile of stones there? You all of a sudden you remember, Oh, yeah, this is actually when we, you know, what crossed over the Jordan or whatever. And you can make some memorials and memorials can be things like, you know, a sticker on your desk. And every time you see the sticker, you go, you know what? I'm going to pray. Or it can be a little widget hanging from your car mirror. Every time you see that thing dangling around, you go, I think I'll pray. Or it could be a, you know, a little stuffed animal, a monster next to your chair. I don't care. It doesn't matter. But make yourself some memorials. And every time you see those things, pray. Just pray. Just pray. Just pray. Try and get in the habit of, you know, I'm going to go to lunch. Where? I'm going to lunch. What am I going to eat? You know, I'm going to go to work. And do what? For what purpose? Who am I working for there? Who's my real boss? You know, you just, and talk to God about, Lord, help me be a good employee. Help me, you know, maybe be a good witness. Maybe bring people in my life. Try and cultivate that all day kind of prayer. Because the scriptures do say you are to pray at all times about all things, right? That's right. And when you do that, you learn to have that prayer life and you're always giving things over to God. You're going to be a content person because you know, okay, God's in control. You know, I dumped it on his desk. You know how it is when you're at the office and all of a sudden somebody comes and puts a big pile of papers of work on your desk. Well, you take them and put them on God's. And you keep dumping everything in your life, all the pressures, stresses, relationships. You dump them on God. You dump them on God. You dump. And it gives you contentment. It gives you peace. That's why Paul says that, you know, in everything by prayer and supplication, we're to make our requests known to God. And then what is the outcome of that? That the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus, which equals contentment. Secondly, understand that God chooses you. Look at verse 13. Here's another antidote to contentment. And when it was day, he called unto him his disciples, and one of them, uh, and of them he chose twelve, 
of whom also he named apostles. Now, here Jesus gets up. He gets his disciples. And and remember, there is a huge, huge group of people here. Maybe five, maybe 10, maybe 15,000 people. Jesus has been praying all night. And the next morning, when it was day, he prayed all until the day. He goes, he hasn't slept all night, and he's going to pick 12 out of this mass of humanity to be his disciples, his apostles. He hasn't slept all night. He's going to make this very important decision, knowing that the church is going to be built on the teaching of the apostles. Now, remember, there's thousands of following him. And the point I want to point out here is that Jesus chose the 12. They did not choose him. He chose them. In John 6, 70, Jesus says, Did I myself not choose you, the 12, and yet one of you is a devil? Jesus even chose the 12 knowing that one of them was going to betray him, and he he wanted that because he needed to be betrayed. Now, if you were to ask Peter and James and John, for instance, the rest... Did you choose Jesus? Did you choose to follow Jesus? What do you think they'd tell you? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. If they were pious, they'd probably say, oh, yeah. You know, we could see he was a teacher. We could see he was a prophet. We could see he was a man of God. And we prayed about it. and We decided, you know, I think I'll follow this guy. He's really something. That's what they'd probably tell you. And when we look at our lives and we start looking at our lives and say, oh, well, you know, how'd you come to know the Lord? Well, you know, I started getting into, interested in Christianity. I started investigating. I started figuring out the gospel. And finally, when I understood it, I realized I was a sinner, repented on my sins and gave my life to Jesus Christ and God changed me. So, yeah, you know, I sought Christ. I found him and, you know, now I'm saved. But what you need to realize is this. God is the one who chose you first. And then you responded to God's grace in your life. God was the first person to act on you by his grace. Then you responded to his call on your life. Just like when Jesus went out and he picked 12, those 12 responded to Jesus's call on their life. And it's so important that you understand this, that you don't miss this point. That God is in control and God is the one who has chosen you. You'll see where this is going in a minute. It's so important to get this straight. Because if you don't get God's sovereignty straight in your mind, you will be a discontent person because you'll always be second guessing what God's doing. Because you'll think maybe he's not sovereign. Maybe he's not in control. Maybe he's not doing what's right. Maybe he failed in picking me. Maybe he failed. Maybe he actually gave me the wrong spiritual gift. Gave me the wrong parents. Gave me the wrong husband. Gave me the wrong job. Gave me the what? Ever. So you're not content because you're really thinking, you know, God isn't really doing what he should be doing to me. This is being envious of what you don't have. It's being discontent. Think of the thousands of people that Jesus didn't choose. He only chose 12. Think of the myriads of people in the world that will perish and go to hell and suffer for all eternity. And God did not choose them. But he chose you. Why? Because he's God. That's why. 
before coming to Christ, you were a slave to sin. You hated God. You were held captive by Satan to do his will. And you know, somebody talked to you. Maybe you didn't even believe in God. Maybe you didn't even believe in hell. And in reality, you were running for hell and destruction as fast as you could. And you were proud of it. And then God invaded your life. He pricked your conscience. He began to draw you by his spirit. He began to open your eyes to the truth. He, by his providence, brought people or things in your life to expose you to the gospel. He granted you repentance. He gave you faith. And then he saved you and changed you into a new creature and put his spirit inside of you. And then somebody comes up to you and says, yeah, tell me about it. Well, I sought the Lord. I got interested in Christianity and... uh I sought Jesus, I found him, and I received him as my Savior, and now I'm saved because of what I've done. No. You believed in Jesus, true, but you did so in response to God's grace. And you need to understand this. You are what you are by the grace of God. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 through 6, it says, Just as he that is the Father chose us in him that is Christ before the foundation of the world... That we would be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. That is so great. Who chose you to be saved before the foundation of the world? God, not you. Turn to Romans nine. Romans nine is such a great Scary and wonderful text. Romans 9 is where Paul, after discussing all that men are sinners and salvation is by grace through faith, he gets to Romans 9 and he just wants to make it crystal clear that God is sovereign. And man, he goes to some scary degrees to show us just how sovereign God is. And look in verses 11 and 12. He's speaking about Esau and Jacob. He says, for though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose, according to his choice, would stand not because of works, but because of him who calls. It was said to her, the older will serve the younger. Now, notice this. Notice it says they weren't even born. They hadn't even done anything good or bad. Notice it says that it was by God's purpose. Notice it says it was by God's choice. Notice it was because of him who calls. But it was said the old, older will serve the younger. And that's what happened. Period. And nothing could change that. Paul knows that people, of course, have a problem with God being this sovereign. You know, they don't mind God being sovereign like a king is sovereign, you know, pretty sovereign over certain areas. But they don't want to see God be really, really sovereign. And so they have a problem and Paul anticipates that problem. And then he reminds them of a conversation that God had with Moses. Look at verse 15, where God told Moses, remember, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and compassion on whom I have compassion. And you know what? That translated means some people I'm going to choose to have mercy on and other people I'm going to choose not to have mercy on them. 
And then just to make sure that it's crystal clear, he goes on to say in the next verse, so it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. It does not depend on man, willing or doing, period. But on God who has mercy. That is, now we're getting a glimpse of how sovereign God is. After using Moses as a positive example of someone who received God's mercy, then Paul uses a negative example to describe somebody who didn't receive God's mercy, Pharaoh, whom God hardened Pharaoh's heart so that he could judge him and display his power to all Israel and all Egypt and show that he was greater than the gods of Egypt and greater than Pharaoh. And he did it. Look down at verses 25 and 26. Paul then quotes what Hosea said about the Gentiles. He says, I will call those who are not my people, my people and her who was not beloved, beloved. And it shall be that in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people there. They shall be called the sons of the living God. You know what? This is a promise that God's going to save some of the Gentiles. And here we are. I mean, we have a few Jews here, but most of us are Gentiles. Because God promised to save you by his sovereign will. All this to say is, you're saved because of God. And you need to be content that you're saved. I don't care how bad it is on this earth. It's going to get really good for everybody who's saved. You take the best person on earth, John the Baptist, the greatest man born of woman. And the least person in the kingdom of heaven is greater than the greatest man on earth. That's good enough. Not only that, not only did God choose to save you, we also learn in texts like 1 Corinthians 12, verse 11, that the Holy Spirit gives gifts to those who are saved just as he, the Holy Spirit, wills, not as you will. You don't get to decide what spiritual gift you have. You know, you may be an encourager, you may be a helper, you may be a teacher, you may be a preacher, you may be a counselor, you may be an administrator, but it's not up to you. You didn't give yourself those gifts. God gave those gifts to you. Not only that, we know from Ephesians 2.10, after it talks about ourselves being saved by grace, it says, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. Not only has he chose you to save you, not only does he give you the gifts he wants you to have, but then he prepares the works he wants you to do. Now that's pretty comforting when you think about it. I mean, that just kind of just squashes discontentment flat. You don't have to be sitting there. Well, you know, you know, I just wish, you know, that I could preach. You know, I wish I could teach. I wish I could counsel. I wish I could, you know, sing like Kimberly Kniep. You know, I wish I could play the drums like Brian. I wish I could, you know, whatever. And we're always looking at somebody else. And we're always wishing we're somebody else rather than just being whom God made us to be. And you know what the irony of it all? You're sitting there thinking, I wish I was so-and-so. And And you know what they're thinking? I wish I was someone else. (laughs) Instead of being content and realizing, listen, you're not so-and-so. You'll never be so-and-so. And so just forget it. You're you. You're the exact you that God made you. You're the exact you that God wants you to be. And God is perfecting you until the day of Christ Jesus in his time, in his way. And he knows what's best for you and you don't. Now, all of this can really help us in our contentment because we realize that God is totally in control. Ephesians 1.11 says it this way. 
It says we have been predestined according to his purpose who works all things after the counsel of his will. That's pretty comprehensive. All things according to the counsel of his will. And that is so encouraging. Your failures, your obedience, your sickness, your health, your education, your ignorance, everything in your life is all part of God's perfect plan. And you know, for some of you, he just has a bad, bitter cup for you to drink all of your life. And it's okay. Because when you get to the other side, you're going to say, oh man, God knew exactly what he was doing for me. Some of you are just going to go through life and have health and prosperity and, you know, die quickly while you're jogging around the block. And man, that's going to be great too. Because God is in control. He made you. He saves you. He sanctifies you. He gives you gifts. He prepares works for you to do. And all of this, when you think about this, just makes you realize, you know, what? I can just, I can just trust God. I don't have to fret. I don't have to be anxious. God is sovereign. I can just know that God is working things out. I'll do the best I can and trust him. God has made you a certain part of this body. And as Peter says in 1 Peter 4.10, as each one has received a special gift, employ it as stewards and serving one another as stewards of the manifold grace of God, that you are a steward of what God has given you, not of what he has given somebody else. If he's given you one talent, use the one talent. If he's given you 50, use 50. But don't wish you had 50 when you only have one, because you'll never have one. Just be whatever he wants you to be, like turning off your cell phones at church. <laughs> so, you serve in the church. You grow according to God's plan and God's way. Don't get all frustrated that you aren't, you know, super godly right now. Listen, God can make you godly real quick. He can stop your heart. You'll be perfect soon. (laughs) And it's going to happen. You know, don't worry about getting perfect. You'll get perfect, but it won't be in this life. And remember that God is the one who's perfecting you until the day of Christ Jesus, not you, not you. You do what God tells you to do, and then you be content with what he is doing through you and in your life. And just rejoice in it. That's so comforting. It's so relaxing. It's so non-stressful. Now, the final point, which is what we're just going to have to skim. We'll come back next week and do the whole thing. Is this. Consider Peter. Consider Peter's example and what he teaches us about contentment. Here's this guy who starts off, his name's Simon, and Jesus gives him the new name, Rock. But he is anything but Rock. He's more like Jello. I mean, the guy's, he's all over the place. He's impulsive. He's impetuous. He blurts out things. You know, Lord, you shall never wash my feet. I mean, what is that? Telling Jesus what to do? He says, they go, Lord, command that I walk on the water. You know, okay, all right, ah, I'm walking in the water. You know, things like that. Lord, though all may forsake you, I will never deny you. For the day is up three times. Even after his, Jesus' death and resurrection, after he sees the risen Lord, Jesus says, go up to Galilee and wait. And so what does he do? I'm not waiting, I'm fishing. 
And then he sways a bunch of the other ones to disobey Jesus. He's, he's the leader. And then after that, Paul tells us in Galatians 2 that he had to rebuke Peter to his face for being a hypocrite. Man, he was, he had problems. He had problems. But you know what? God was greater than Peter. And by the time you get to the end of his life and you read 1 Peter and 2 Peter, Peter has become the rock that God was making him into all along. Was he messed up? Yeah. Did he have problems? Yeah. Did he fix him? Definitely. And you know what? Here we are. We're a bunch of people. Messed up? Yeah. Problems? Yeah. And God's fixing us. Okay. He, he can't lie. He's, he's got to keep his word. He says he will perfect us until the day of Christ Jesus. So believe him and relax. Do what he says for you to do and just trust God. Charles Spurgeon said a little sprig of the herb called content will put, put into the porous soup will make it taste as rich as the Lord's mare's turtle. Spurgeon also wrote, it's not how much we have, but how much we enjoy that makes us happy. Quit looking at what you don't have and start looking at what you do have. God chose you out of the mass of perishing humanity. God gave you spiritual gifts and experiences and things that no one else has. God has prepared certain works for you that only you are going to be able to do. And he is perfecting you. And you can't stop him. You will be perfect. When you just wait long enough. Don't ask for perfection too quick. You'll get there when you have a brain aneurysm or something. And so as you leave here today, be committed to cultivate a life of prayer It will keep you from being discontent. When you leave here today, remind yourself that God is sovereign in control of every aspect of your life. All your situations and everything is under God's sovereign control. Third, leave here today thinking about Peter who started out with so many problems and yet finished as the rock. In the classic story, Robinson Crusoe, Crusoe after being shipwrecked on his deserted island finds a Bible among the wreckage of the ship and he begins to read it and it starts changing his life. And he says this, I learned to look more upon the bright side of my condition and less upon the dark side and to consider what I enjoyed rather than what I wanted. And this gave me sometimes such secret comforts that I cannot express them. And which I take notice here to put those discontented people in mind of it who cannot enjoy comfortably what God has given them because they see and covet something that he has not given them. All our discontents about what we want appear to me to spring from the want of thankfulness for what we have. End quote. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the principles we find in these first verses. And even though we weren't able to get into Peter much and look at his life, I just thank you for the principles here, how we see Jesus so contently going about his life, knowing the death sentences on him, 
knowing torture awaits him, knowing the future of the church is going to be placed in the hands of riffraff. And yet, Father, you gave him the peace. He had that peace and contentment, which we need to model our lives after. Father, also help us to remember your sovereignty, that you are in control, that we don't need to be fret or be anxious. You're working. You've got a plan for everything. And you're going to get glory for yourself and work everything out for our good. And finally, help us to remember Peter when we feel like we've got a lot of problems, feel like we got a lot of shortcomings and we got a long way to go. Help us to remember Peter and how you, by your grace, changed him over the years and turned him into a rock, made sure that his name matched his character. We thank you for that. We anticipate what you will do in our lives. Help Calvary Bible Church be a church of joy and happiness, not envy and complaining and discontent. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.